This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hey, Gabby, give me a call you can't. Welcome to the show. And my guest today is now author Melissa Gould, the author of a book that was just released called Widowish, a memoir. This is why I do this podcast. Yes, I love the learning, all the incredibly intelligent people, but it's the heart and the soul of people who are willing to share very difficult experiences. Melissa writes a book about losing her husband, the love of her life unexpectedly, Joel, and just Every bit that she went through, from dealing with Joel at the hospital, having to give permission to let Joel go, dealing with the family, her only child, her daughter, to dating again, all of it, her sense of humor, her honesty, her love. This is an incredible story because If you've gone through it yourself, or maybe you know somebody, this just gives you insight on the experience and some ideas on how to deal with it or how to support somebody going through it. Simple things like this. When somebody goes through something and you say, hey, if you need anything, call me, they're not gonna call you. What you have to do is just help them. Leave the food, you know, pick up the kid for them at school, whatever it is. This conversation is funny, it's sad, it's inspiring. And I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Melissa Gould, thank you for coming to my house. You have a book that will be coming out. We're taping early, but your book comes out today for all intensive purposes. Fantastic. And it's called Widowish. Am I saying that right? Widowish. 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 <laughs> Widowish, right? a memoir. Right. Yes. Yes. So I read your book, of course. And before we get into the book, 
I would just like to hear a little bit. I'm going to know a lot about you by the time we're done here, but just <laughs> your background, TV and, and things like that. And you grew up in Los Angeles. Maybe you could just give me a little bit of background onto you and only you first. And then we're going to get into this really beautiful and difficult story. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, thank you so much. It is so thrilling to be here talking with you. Well, let's see. Let's see. You won't, maybe we'll see what you think at the end of this. Okay. I have a feeling I'm right, but I actually grew up in Los Angeles and New York because my parents were divorced and my mom and my sister and I moved out to California when I was in sixth grade. And so I really was one of these um, legit bi-coastal kids because my father always lived in Manhattan. And so I just had this life of going back and forth, which is interesting because I think from a very young age, I was familiar in a way with loss of some kind Mm. because I was either 3,000 miles away from my father for months at a time or 3,000 miles away from my mother for months at a time. But I grew up, you know, I went to high school out here. When I graduated college, I moved to New York and worked in advertising And I always knew that I was going to be a writer. I just really didn't know how that would manifest. But from a very young age, I wanted to be a writer. I thought it would be in advertising. I thought, okay, I'm set. I'm living in New York City. I was in my 20s. Life was good, but I couldn't keep up with my peers. I was working at an ad agency in the creative department as an assistant, and I was working on my portfolio and putting together my ads, and I had produced a few radio spots. But everybody around me who was also like, you know, young and upcoming and very artistic, they knew which agency was producing which campaigns with, um, you know, which art directors and which direct. And I just, it wasn't clicking for me. Mm -hmm. And I started to have like, oh my God, maybe this isn't the right thing for me. And a friend of mine who was a little bit older suggested that I take a screenwriting class because she thought that most of the creatives at the ad agency were either frustrated screenwriters or frustrated directors. But having grown up in Los Angeles, I was repelled by by the idea of doing anything Hollywood. I just, it didn't appeal to me. But I took my friend's advice. I signed up for a class at the new school. It was like screenwriting 101. Within the first minute when the teacher was like, okay, we're gonna start with fade in. Mm. I was like, oh no. I think I have to move back to LA because I realized that was really what I was looking for somehow. You know, when you're in advertising, it's like, it's quick, it's punchy, it's catchy, it's all these things. Was this about, you know, you connecting with a story? Probably. It was a certainly a longer story to tell than a 30 second, 30 second mm-hmm. ad spot. There was something about the world that you could create inhabited by characters that weren't real in a world of your own making, something about it really appealed to me. And I started writing spec scripts, which is basically when you're writing a spec script, you're writing um, either something original that you can show other writers and producers to ideally get you work on a show, or you can write what I did, which was I would write a sample. I think I wrote like a Seinfeld sample. That was a big show at the time. For every half hour spec I wrote, I would also write a one hour spec because I thought I could write drama or comedy. Like that's, I was driven. And so I, I'm forgetting the shows at the time. I think Northern Exposure, I had a Northern Exposure spec, mm-hmm. a Seinfeld, but like I had one for one. And whenever I would come out to LA to visit my mom and see my friends, 
I would try to meet other writers and other producers and people on shows. And eventually I moved back to LA. I was, I had, you know, spec after spec and I met with the producers of Bill Nye, the science guy. Mm-hmm. And you might find this interesting, but this is how I got the job. They were in LA meeting people for their new show. I had to move up. That was the irony. I moved back to LA to yeah. be a screenwriter. And within a year, I was meeting the producers of Bill Nye, the science guy who said, you know, we have this show, we film it up in Seattle. And I was like, oh, okay. So I still had my apartment in New York. I had just had, you know, started a lease on an apartment in LA. But anyway, I'm meeting with the producers of Bill Nye, the science guy, we're talking. And nobody at the time knew who Bill Nye was, but I had maybe seen like a demo reel or something. And I loved it because it reminded me of MTV Sports. Oh, come on. And so this is why I got the job because they're like, what What do you think? Like, you know, I wasn't a scientist, clearly. You know, I was there for comic relief, basically. But they said like, what is it about the show that's appealing to you? Or how do you envision the show? Mm-hmm. I said, well, to me, it's like science. It's like MTV sports, but science. Yeah. And they were like, you're hired. We need you moving up to Seattle like the end of next week. And I couldn't believe it. But were that you like was, 24, five? How old are you at that time? I was 20. Four. So how do you create comedy for a science show? This is the embarrassing part. Because the the age group that they were going for with Bill Knight was fourth grade. So that's was very it, specific. It, it was a fourth grade level. There's some scientific reasoning behind sure, that. But if the scientists if there was a, a group of scientists and obviously Bill writing the show, and then there was like a very small staff of us providing the comedy, if they could explain the concept to me specifically, in a way that I understood, then we could start writing the show. (laughs) So like explaining the solar system or explaining the sun is a star. And, you know, me having these like, oh my God, moments. Then they're like, all right, we got to show, you know, we can go now. Yeah. And so somehow, and you know, and Bill was as wacky and it was such a great experience being on that show. And it just, you know, from that show, then, you know, I just, at that point, I, my husband, was mm-hmm. in the picture yes. towards the end of all of that. But but yes, yeah, so I just, I had this career as a TV writer for many years. I did start very young. And then some things, you know, in life shifted and I kind of moved away from that. And then tragedy struck. And your memoir of this part of your life, because again, you're a young woman who has already written new chapters since you've written this book and will have, you know, a lot more. But just this part of your life. So you you met your husband, Joel, and well, you were friends. Maybe take us take us into this. Cause so so we went ahead. Now we're just gonna go back a couple of years. Summer job was working at a record label. It happened to be Atlantic Records. For those of you listening that don't know what a record is. <laughs> I know. No, I'm kidding. But it, that's when actually they had a lot of power and they did a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean it is funny because the business has changed so totally. like like everything yeah. in entertainment. But um my summer job was working at Atlantic Records and it was Joel's real job because he was a few years older than me. And there was just something about him. I mean, I write about this in the book, but he told me this really stupid joke, which was where do cantaloupe and honeydew go in the summertime? Mm-hmm. And the punchline is John Cougar Mellencamp. Yeah. So at the time, we all knew John Cougar is John Cougar. And yeah. then he became John Cougar Mellencamp. It was a big funny joke for everybody, especially those of us in the music industry. Joel told me that joke and I really just fell in love with him on the spot. I had a boyfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. Joel had a girlfriend at the time who he was living with, but we just had a connection 
And it wasn't romantic. I think we just were really in awe of each other as people, as human mm-hmm. beings. We connected and we genuinely liked each other. And I feel like, and I have written about um, that before, that like when you fall in love with somebody, I almost think that's so much easier than falling in like and sustaining the like. Mm. Well, it's chemistry too, right? Like I think we 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 can even have that with our friends. Like you've brought in a friend here today and you obviously, the two of you have a natural chemistry. And I right. think we meet people and we're like, oh, I, I'm drawn to this person. So you you had this chemistry with him, but but then you, did you hang out as friends at that time? Or it was we just more did. at work and lunch and things like that? We did only because, you know, we were both so young. We were both avid music lovers. So, and there was a big component of going out, working at a record label when our bands mm. would be playing around town, you know, the whole office would go. So we spent a lot of time together. It was completely platonic. We had other friends in the mix. There was a sort of a small group of us, but I really liked him. And you know, this was pre-internet. And somehow when I I left that job and I was living in New York and we had so many friends in common. And every now and then I would get a phone call from a friend of mine who would say, oh, we were at the replacements show last night and Joel was there and mm. I was trying to watch the band, but he just kept asking about you and how you were doing. Now, meanwhile, when I was living in New York, I had a boyfriend there and he and I were living together at the time. But Joel was always kind of in the back of my mind as the prototype of the guy I wanted to marry one day. Mm-hmm. I never thought it would be him just because our lives seemed to be very different. But you, you, there were things about him where you go, oh, that would, that kind of guy. Yeah, like check, yeah. funny, check, yeah. handsome, check, yeah. my friend, check, mm. um, yeah. sexy, check, mm-hmm. all of those things. Yeah, I never thought that he would be the guy I would end up marrying, but then. And, and you don't seem like a baseball kind of girl. I have to admit, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> No offense, but I mean, I wouldn't have known when I read the book, but so you're in living different lives and now you're going to pursue, which brings us a little more to where you brought us saying, hey, I'm going to go to LA and get this done. And you go to, again. Right. So I'm back in LA for five minutes with the ambition of becoming a TV writer. What's the word? Beshert? Beshert. Yes. I love, I think it's so appropriate. It really, for this, yes, you're so right. It was Beshert. So I'm back in town for five minutes. One of my best friends from high school invites me to go to a Dodger game. Why'd you you go? I think because I was newly back in town and I was so ready for my life to start. Mm. And I just was like, maybe I'll meet a writer at the Dodger game and that person will be able to get me a job. I I was so ambitious and so fearless about my ambition. And I was open to anything. And so, and this is one of my best friends and I, we had good seats or whatever it was. I don't know. I, I said, yes, I would go. And literally within minutes of walk, I, I gave the guy, this is when you had to hand somebody your ticket <laughs> and walk through the turnstile. And I look up to kind of get my bearings and I see Joel and his green eyes like staring right at me. And it was so jarring because it was so unexpected had I run into him at a concert that weekend yeah. or even at some little club on Sunset Boulevard, like that would have made much more sense. Or even Tower Records, which was still around at the time. Like any of those scenarios would have made so much more sense. But you're right. I'm not a baseball person. No, it's like, you know, Melissa, I don't know. Yeah. Baseball. <laughs> I do not speak the sports. Um, but I was there. Joel was there. You know, he immediately came over to me and he was like, this is amazing. These aren't even my seats. He was expecting to see his dad and happened to be turned around looking for his dad. I happened to be walking in, 
you know, hearts came out of our eyes the way like in a cartoon, but the timing was still off for him. And, and, and for me too, I mean, I was very ambitious and I did not want any kind of romantic entanglements or whatever. And again, still pre-internet, we, I think I wrote my phone number down for him. I don't even think I had a phone number. Somehow, maybe he gave me his, his number, but we, we kept in touch. But then, like I was saying about Bill Nye, I was in town. You know, I think I gave myself, I had moved back to LA from New York. I gave myself one year, you know, I was 24 year old, yeah. years old and full of hubris. And I gave myself one year to make it, to see my name um, on a written by credit, thinking it was completely possible. I'm saying all this because I kept my apartment in New York. I had just signed a lease in my apartment in LA and now I was moving to Seattle. Right. So all Joel knew that I had been living in New York. He couldn't believe that I had just gotten back. And then we spoke again and I was like, guess what? I'm moving to Seattle. <laughs> and he was like, you just got back from New York. Like, what are you talking about? But, and then just a series of events happened and he came up to Seattle to you know, within a year of my being there and to just kind of declare his love for me and say... Now, did you guys talk? I mean, or was it something he was cleaning up his side of the street and then it was in maybe in the he had decided already? I think we both would joke about too bad the timing is off. Mm. Like we're ships passing. That was the thing we used to say to each other. There was a movie not a great movie, but I love it. It's called Immortal Beloved, and Gary Oldman plays Beethoven. And there's a scene where he's like running up. It's like this double staircase, and he's running up one side to find his love, and his love is running down the other side to find him. But neither one knows that. And so Joel and I would always say to each other, Immortal Beloved, we're immortal. <laughs> Where? Yeah, that's, but that's a pretty strong innuendo, Melissa. That's not like a secret, you know. So when he came up and he comes to Seattle, well, he came with a band, right? They were he was, he was on tour. Or yeah, he was working with a band he was on tour with, and they happened to be stopping in Seattle. And he let me know, I'm coming up. Can I see you? And I was like, Oh my god, that would be amazing. But again, like I was living my life. We, we you're right. It was there was a lot of innuendo in that. But it's, so it's sort of like we it was spoken but not taken too seriously. Yeah. We were very respectful of each other's lives. And I was, I mean, I was in Seattle. I was having the time of my life. Grunge was new. <laughs> Kurt Cobain was still alive. Like, I, you know, I'd go into clubs and I'd see like Dave Grohl sitting there. Like, it was great because I had my love of music and I had my writing. I couldn't believe it was like yeah. the perfect event for me, you know, to be up there. And so when Joel got there, we did, it was sort of like, that was it. It was like, we should be together. Mm. We're going to be together. This is how we're going to do it. Like you finish up what you're doing up here in Seattle. Like you said, I'm cleaning up my side of the street in LA. Yeah. And that was it. And, and we were what really, are you like 25 years old or something? At that point, I was maybe 25, 26. Does that seem, does that sound young to you now? So young. <laughs> yes. I was a baby. Yeah. And when I was even younger, we met when I was, I think, 19. So we had been in and out of each other's lives for a long time, but again, never with any sense of like, that's, I, I wish he was my boyfriend. I yeah. wish I, but just, I wish I will marry somebody just like him one day, yeah. but it never, it just didn't work out until it did. Did you leave Seattle kind of to be with him or had you sort of said, hey, that served its purpose and simultaneously I'm really drawn to go and pursue this with him? It was, it was two things actually. I had been on Bill Nye for about a year at that point. And the show was really, you know, picking up speed. 
And I loved it. And when I look at the span of, of all of my TV credits, it's like one of, it's funny, I have like bookends. Like that was my first show. It was like one of the best experiences. And then my last show, mm. which was also for Disney, ironically, was Lizzie McGuire. That was also a fantastic experience. But the in-between was like, eh, you know, it's Hollywood. I felt like I knew what Bill Nye was. I knew, um, you know, what the show was. And I knew where it was headed. But I was still, because I was so young and so driven, mm-hmm. I thought, I want to be in L.A. That's where the options are. And Joel was part of that. I mean, of course, he, he was like my love kind of coming to claim me. Yeah. <laughs> and it was very romantic. And I think the timing, we both realized, like, now's the time. Mm. It's nice, too, when people put it out there. I think it's so, it's an interesting, you know, we were talking earlier, I have three daughters and sometimes they laugh at me and they'll be like, you know, people just, they don't talk like that. Like they're not boyfriend and girlfriend. They're just hanging out. They're not doing the thing. And I I go, well, sometimes it's nice though when somebody stands up and clearly says, hey, I really, I really like you or I really love you or I'd like to pursue being with you. There's something that's really nice about that. It's it's very simple, but I think right now everyone is afraid to be shut down or is this in person or is it eyeball to eyeball or are we swiping? Like, I think it's right. an interesting, and it, it's so funny because in listening to it, it seems like it sounds old fashioned, but it it's so simple when some, one person can declare to another, I'd like to stick my neck out and I'm going to stand out here and, and uh, say that for you. And I, I don't know, I, I think there's something really sweet. I think you're so right. And my daughter, who's 20 now and mm. knows the this great romance that her father and I had, you know, it makes her sad in a way that she doesn't feel like that's possible in this day and age. Yeah. That it is kind of superficial. And to find that kind of deep connection, we didn't have the option of like hiding behind a screen or even just typing it out to somebody I like you. Like you kind of had to say these things or yeah. have an actual experience with somebody that I do think is lacking. Yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, listen, I think that it's all an experiment with this technology and and people will, they'll figure it out. But it is just that when I read about him coming and saying to you, like, I want to be with you, I think it's really important for all of us to stand up in our lives and just say what we want, how we feel, and to know it's really scary. And that's kind of how you make it happen. And he really, Joel really did. Like, I was not expecting that. I was expecting he was going to come up to Seattle. We were going to hang out, have a really fun night. And then I'd go back to my life. He'd go back to his life and... Yes. I think I want you to lead me to where, you know, the things that you want to talk about. But I have some very specific questions because, like I said, it's an important conversation to have. So how was, was it easy for you? You know, was it what you had expected or anticipated? Because I know, like, for me, my first three years of my marriage, pretty okay. It was like learning a language, though. I didn't know. And there were certain things. And so actually we hit kind of a weird spot after five years of marriage or being together five years married for three but um, it sounded like it was it was pretty fluid for you guys. It was. The whole language thing is more like where I'm at now. <laughs> yeah, but I even mean the rhythm of like communication and maybe you and Joel had a shorthand that was really natural. Well, that's what I think I meant when I said we liked each other mm. so much because he really was, I felt um, with Joel more than anybody ever to this day, he really got me. Mm. And he really saw me and he understood me. 
And it's not that I'm like such a complicated person, but we all come with our own baggage and history. And my life was um, somewhat nonlinear, just with the back and forth and the bi-coastal. And his parents were divorced as well. And his parents were divorced. And um, both of our fathers had been remarried and and are still with the, the women who they have been married to for, you know, 30, 40 years or something. But we had this, we had a similar enough background that somehow as much as he understood me, I understood him. And we both gave each other the room to kind of be who we are. So mm-hmm. yeah, I am not of the sports, but he really was. And he, and I, that's the other thing, Gabby, like I didn't, when I ran into him at the Dodger game, like it was novelty for me. He was a season ticket holder. He's, he's the unusual person who was born and raised in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So he grew up with the Dodgers and the Lakers and whatever the other teams are. His family were season ticket holders to the Dodgers. So he was there all the time. Also, you know, season ticket holders to Laker games. He was there all the time. So that was a part of him I never even knew about. So that was also strange. Because right, you I had shared the music there. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I wasn't expecting that. But I also didn't know what a jock he was. Like he was on a basketball team and a softball team and he played racquetball several times a week. And because he grew up in LA when he was a kid, he was a surfer and mm-hmm. he would find empty pools to sneak into people's backyards and skateboard in. And all of this stuff that made him like a, a really like a complete and full person. You thought that was sexy, huh, Melissa? <laughs> I can see it in your eyes right now. Like, that was so hot. I didn't know that about him. I love like the skateboard stuff. There's something about grown men still acting like boys that I think is incredibly sexy and important if they can do it, if they're naturally. You're so have it. right. Yeah, it's not cute when they're just grown men Hor- only acting <laughs> like little boys. <laughs> but when they're, they've got that balance, you're like, that's hot. It's yes. totally hot. So how long were you married before you had Sophia, your daughter? Married in 97. She was born in 2000, so three years. But again, we had been together for so long. Our life together really merged fairly seamlessly. We just very much in love and very much in like, and we're happy to be together. You know, it's unusual too, right? Like when you talk about yes. it, ease, the sense of ease of it. I mean, it's wonderful, but it is also probably more unusual. I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. And my mom would always make comments like, I can't believe how lucky you've been in love. And, you know, she loved Joel and he was a lovable guy. And he was an amazing husband because of the reasons I've said, just feeling so understood and feeling so seen. And he, you know, he tolerated me. Like I didn't, I think about that now sometimes because he's been gone for seven years. Mm -hmm. And I I know I'm kind of jumping around, but I think, you know, I'm older and wonder sometimes like if I would have softened up a little bit with him. Sometimes I think I was maybe dismissive of him sometimes because I knew his love for me was so unconditional mm-hmm. that if I was in the middle of a conversation with my friend Ellie, who's here with me, yeah. and he would walk in and say like, hey, babe, what's up? I'm talking to Ellie, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> yeah. and he'd be like, okay. And it- <laughs> Well, also like culturally, the women usually in your culture are pretty tough. Right? Yes. And I, we, we would joke I mean, about that. Like, you know, and in charge and, but everybody has different languages. He probably ignored half of that from you and was like, oh, okay. And, you know, didn't he, cause if you, that you know somebody and you know their intention, you're not like, oh, you know, why is she talking to me like that? Right. And also we all grow up. Who right. you are today, especially given all that you've gone through, but even still, it's like, we all kind of, I mean, hopefully. Right. We grow up and hopefully actually in certain things, maybe we soften some of our edges 
Sometimes it goes the other way. I always think like at around oh, 40, you get this turning point where either you're going to go left or right, but you don't get to stay the same. And either you soften up and you chill out or you just get more brutal and more harsh. A friend of mine says that about like really elderly people. Yeah, it's like you have to choose because it's just coming. So you like you have to pick and then participate like, okay, because I I just think that's just the way it is. So, you know, so maybe just share he was, you know, he got, he wasn't feeling great. And yeah. So because he was such a jock and he was so in tune with his Mm. body, there was a period of time Sophie was around eight years old. And also, again, Joel was always in the music industry. So I went off and became a TV writer, but he's, you know, was in the music industry. And so our lives were such, like I said, we gave each other a lot of room. You know, he'd get up and go to the gym every day. And three or four nights a week, he was going out to see bands and Mm. concerts. And sometimes I would go, a lot of times I wouldn't. But things started to change because he would plan to go see a band. But if he didn't have a seat, it was hard for him to stand for like mm. hours at a time. So if he was going to see somebody at like the Roxy or the Whiskey, like a small club, sure. there's no seats. And he would start questioning whether or not he could go if he wanted to go. What did he What did he initially strike it up to? That was just kind of noted. The whole, like, it's weird. Like I, my legs get really fatigued. What sent him and us eventually on, on search of a diagnosis was he would be going, he played basketball once a week five minutes from our house. So he would leave to go play. And, you know, Sophie was eight. So I'd be like, she's in bed. Joel's at basketball. I'm going to watch my housewives, have my glass of wine. Like it was my time for, you know. And one of the nights that Joel left for basketball, he was home within 10 minutes. And I was like, oh, maybe he forgot something. And I saw he was very distraught. And what he told me was that he had to come home because the game started and he couldn't get his legs to work, Mm. that he saw the ball going down the court and he knew his brain was like, go get it. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't somehow signal his body that there was a disconnect. And what he told me was that that had been happening for a while and he just kept hoping and thinking that wishful thinking it would go away or next week will be different. How old was he at this time? He was in his early 40s. So he was young and he was the picture of health. Mm -hmm. So when he started going to doctors and would tell them this scenario, they didn't really know what to make of him because here was this guy, great shape, like I said, very athletic. He cared about like what he put into his body. He, you know, he was not by any means like a health fiend, but no. he took care of himself. Yeah. Wasn't a smoker, all of that. And so eventually saw a neurologist who did an MRI. And in the MRI, they saw that he had a bulging disc somewhere. So they prescribed physical therapy. And Joel was pissed because he was like, listen, we're in our forties. If anybody gets an MRI, of course, there's gonna be bulging disc. He's like, that's not what it is. Mm. But he went with it because we just thought, we'll just try it, you know, however many weeks and just see if it helps. It didn't help. He went to another neurologist. And this time they did an MRI with contrast, which is important because that will indicate anything that's there that shouldn't be there. Mm. And sure enough, he got the results that there were lesions on his brain and lesions on his spinal cord, which undoubtedly meant he had multiple sclerosis, MS. And um, Was it in the family? At all? Here's what's crazy. It's in your family. It's in my family, not in Joel's family. But we knew enough about the disease. We knew enough people. His father had a very good friend with MS. 
my dad has MS and it has presented very differently than it ever did for Joel. And that's the thing about, I think all autoimmune diseases, but in particular, MS is the only one I really know about and can speak to. It presents differently in almost everybody. There are some similarities, but for the most part, they're just like, they're different. But for Joel, it meant, and MS in general means your ability to move can be greatly diminished and affected. And for Joel, that meant his legs really were not receiving the signals they needed from his brain to work properly. And by that, I mean his walking became labored. Sometimes with people who have MS, you can see one of their feet may drag. There's a gait to their walk that's sort of specific. A lot of people with MS end up in wheelchairs. Many don't. I guess just backing up a little bit. So when we got the diagnosis, it was devastating. I was going to say, as a couple, when you get that kind of information, you have the person who is the physical patient, but then you have the people who are also part of this, but they don't have the ailment, but they have their own feelings. Do you keep your feelings and share them only with your friends and just try to support him? Do you openly, how did you guys manage sort of that dynamic? I think because Joel and I talked about everything, it wasn't, in the beginning, it really, it was devastating to receive that diagnosis for both of us. Mm -hmm devastating because, you know, we went to like the worst case scenario and both of our minds were racing and we're thinking, and Sophie's only eight years old and what is our life going to look like as a family? And, you know, we had a one-story house and we were like, okay, well, you know, we would make jokes, like at least we don't have any stairs, you know, got over the initial shock and continued to live our lives. He saw one of the foremost specialists in MS who happened to be here in LA, whose care he was under for a number of years. And it was tremendous. It was like, he was a remarkable doctor. Mm -hmm. And Joel was put on a course of medication that worked for him. It worked really well. And the way those medications work is they stave off the symptoms of the disease. So he couldn't play basketball anymore. So it doesn't make that the signaling in Joel's case, the way it's getting informed, it doesn't mean that the signaling is going to get better, but it maybe delays some of the deterioration or the symptoms coming on worse. Is that right? Yes. Okay. For Joel. Yes. In this case. Yeah. So he started doing things like bike riding around the neighborhood. He could do that well. Mm -hmm. He found yoga, which I really think saved him. In the beginning, he, it was depressing a diagnosis like this. So I wouldn't say that Joel was a depressed person, but a diagnosis. I mean, that's what's so ironic too, Gabby. It's like you get these diagnoses and then you find the medication and you find the course of treatment and the side effects of all of these things. One is depression. <laughs> and we were, you know, it was like a bad, I write this in the book, but it's like a bad Saturday night live mm-hmm. sketch where like, you know, symptoms may include, and it's like the word you're choosing your poison. Okay. You know, I could die of a heart attack. I could have depression. I could have thoughts of suicide, but Hey, my legs won't feel bad today when mm-hmm. I wake up. So, um, but we did find a medication and for a number of years it worked for him, but still the medication working for him still meant he couldn't really play basketball. But he did find yoga. It gave him the same sort of endorphin rush. The irony is yoga is about balance. He could do it somehow. He could Mm -hmm. be on his yoga mat and stand on one foot. And he was able to do, then I got into yoga. But I, I still struggle with things that Joel made seem so effortless. Again, I think because he was more of an athlete than I, he could do those things. But, but after a number of years, Yoga became difficult the way basketball had been difficult Mm. years earlier. His legs were really bothering him. 
to the point where he couldn't go to concerts at all. Even if he had a seat to sit in, just the way things are set up here yeah, in Los Angeles. Getting in, getting yes. out, things like that. We all know that exercise and eating right and getting to bed is part of self-care. But what about financial self-care? And if last year didn't show us anything, you never know what's going to happen in life. And you never know what life's going to throw at you. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Upstart. And Upstart is a fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt. And it's all online. So if you're paying off credit cards or you're trying to consolidate a high interest debt, oh, that's a nightmare. Or funding personal expenses. You know, we've got all these unexpected expenses and maybe you need a little extra money. Over half a million people have already used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. And the amazing thing I love about this is it's all to one place. I think as you, you know, if you have multiple loans or you're dealing with lots of different credit cards, it gets confusing. It's a lot to manage. And this way, Upstart makes things simple with one monthly payment from one place. And this is this is great because you also know what you're going to deal with, right? With a, with a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate right up front for loans from $1,000 to $50,000, depending on your needs. And you can get approved the same day and can receive funds as fast as one business day. So if debt is taking over your life, it's really time to get that fresh start with Upstart. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash Gabby. That's upstart.com slash Gabby. So remember, it's U-P-S-T-A-R-T dot com slash Gabby. And remember, don't forget to put the URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash Gabby. As a mom of three daughters, we've always talked about skincare and you go in my girl's bathroom and there's skincare products. And then you start realizing, well, wait a minute, what about the boys? And I think if you have secrets, you have to share them. Well, I have a new secret. It's called Strike Club. And it is an incredible brand of skincare made specifically for the guys, for boys, because they are different. And it was created by four moms, of course. One of them is a pediatric dermatologist. And it starts with really just even how easy it is to use. Guys aren't going to be fussing around. It's discreet. You know, it's low profile. It doesn't have a ton of sense, smells. It's just really easy, non-embarrassing. You know, they sort of say locker room worthy, easy to use. It's made for them. It's safe. So everyone's happy. Your mom's happy. If it's formulated without parabens and sulfates, it's of course cruelty free. They even have a verified, they've been verified by the environmental working group because it has been created by moms. I think this idea that safety is non-negotiable is really woven within the brand and the products and it's effective. How do we help young men learn how to take care of their skin. Um, it has ingredients that kill the bacteria that cause acne, you know, it's without dryness and irritation. So they've really thought about it all. It's effective, safe, easy to use, and not embarrassing for the guys. So you can get it at Target. Strike Club is available at Target stores and Target online, or you can go to strikeclub.com. That's S-T-R-Y-K-E club. CLUB.com right now. And if you enter the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y at checkout, you'll get 
15% off your purchase. That's Strike Club, S-T-R-Y-K-E-C-L-U-B.com. And if you put in the code Gabby, you'll get a 15% savings. They even have bundles and make it really easy, not only for you to share it and give it, but for the guys to use. We have a new sponsor of the podcast, and I know it's a brand that you've seen at the grocery store. Maybe you've been curious about them. It's a family-owned and operated business, and it's called Forager Project. And what they do is they craft 100% organic, dairy-free. They've got yogurts, kefirs, milks, and sour creams, and they use their hero ingredient. It's one I cook with all the time, cashews, because cashews make the creamiest, most delicious base for all of their products. So for our podcast listeners, maybe you have been wanting to check it out. And for whatever reason you haven't gotten there, Forager is offering a limited offer coupon for a free cup of yogurt. You can try there. And if you head to www.foragerproject, that's F-O-R-A-G-E-R, P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot com slash cultivate health. I mean, they have so many beautiful, hundreds of delicious and easy to make dairy-free recipes and other types of products. You can cultivate health with forager projects. And remember, always organic, always plant-based. And I love their motto, let good food be. As a parent, do you ever wish someone could just whisper some realistic and trustworthy support in your ear? and not make you feel awful for not having all the answers? Well, that's what I'm here for. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, developmental psychologist, parent educator, clinical professor, and I'm a mom. My goal is to make your parenting journey less overwhelming and a lot more joyful. Please join me every Friday for new episodes of Raising Good Humans. How about his overall cognitive function? That was all... The last year of his life was 2013. And it was a seminal year for our family because Sophie was turning 13 and having her bat mitzvah. Mm -hmm. And Joel was turning 50 that summer. It's almost like somehow the minute the year turned to like 2013, Joel rapidly started to deteriorate. And the meds that he had been on really stopped working altogether. So Mm -hmm. we were in this quest to find a new medication. And new ones are always being tried and developed. And there are some really fantastic medications out there. We could not find one that yeah. was working. Over the course of him having MS, you know, he would maybe get MRIs once a year or something like that, just to see if there were more lesions, if the ones, they never fully go away, but maybe they heal in some way. Okay. So he had an MRI in 2013 and there was one lesion that was new in particular, that the doctors thought were the cause of everything that was ailing him. And the hope was that if once he got on a new medication that was working, that it would help. Quiet it down a bit. Yeah. But we could not find a medication. And Joel started changing up his diet again, and he was getting very down in a way he had never been. Let's talk about you during this Oh, in this you part. You asked about, yes. No, in this part for you. Again, when you have a patient, and we've all had people that we're going to, that we take care of, caregivers, parents, partners, everything I read about Joel, he seems like one of the most selfless and strong people. And I'm sure he was consoling you in certain ways, but where are you drawing, redrawing the strength to show up, not only for him, but your daughter? What sort of secrets or techniques or what did you do? Because it's a lot. And it's scary because it's scary on so many levels. It's like, 
oh, my lo- my lover, my partner, my daughter's father, one of the providers of my household. I mean, it's just like many different things. And then watching a friend go through something that they're suffering. That was really hard for me, is the realization that my husband was suffering so much because he was really so stoic. Yeah. He came home from that one basketball game and I was like, oh my God, just tonight? That's so weird. And it, you know, he had been walking around with that mm-hmm. for a while. But it was, it was not until 2013 when I realized how badly his suffering was. And that's when I started reaching out to friends. And that's when I was feeling really scared. And I didn't necessarily want to share that with my husband because I didn't want, I wanted to be strong for him. I remember taking a walk on the beach, not far from here, (laughs) with a friend of mine and really crying and just saying, I don't know that I'm cut out to be a nurse. Like that's where this is headed. And I don't feel like I have that capability. It was a really rough time. And it was a rough time in our marriage, I would say, because of that. Because I feel like Joel was holding things back from me. Mm-hmm. I was holding things. We loved each other so much, but we, this was a— Well, everybody protecting everybody. Yes. And then everybody suffering privately, both, right? That's exactly it. it. It's like, yes. it's so tricky, especially when you're talking about something so personal like family, where sometimes it's hard not to just go into your own corner and lick your wounds, too, simultaneously to saying, hey, I'm going to show up for this person. And I think part of that for me, showing up for Joel meant, it's not that people didn't know, all of our friends and and my closest friends and obviously our family, everybody knew that he had MS. But it wasn't until I think he was really suffering that I started to really share about it more Mm -hmm. widely. I called, I mean, I'm very close with both of Joel's parents and everybody in his family, but I didn't think they had an understanding of how bad things were. And I felt compelled to call and tell them. And I think part of that was because I wanted the help too. I thought that they could maybe step in and maybe check in on Joel more. And his whole family lives in Los Angeles. So I thought, come, you know, I said to his dad, maybe meet him for lunch once a week. And I called his mom and I Mm -hmm. said, if you want to come and cook for us and just spend time together, because I was asking in a way on behalf of Joel, but it was really for me. And Joel didn't know I was calling everybody because I thought that would upset him. When you are in a relationship with a person, Part of your job is to protect them. And also, if you're talking about somebody who is independent and, um, you know, virile and all these things, as a partner, you're going to protect Joel there um, also. Yeah. I, you know, but that's, but then there comes a point where it's like, hey, everybody needs to step in and, and not only support the whole situation, but really, and also you're providing an opportunity for his family. Let's not forget that to take advantage. Yes. Yeah. To help. We, we think it's like, uh, you know, it's not just for you. It, if, if somebody didn't know you needed help and then found out later, like, I could have helped, you gave them that opportunity. That's a really good point. Yeah. And I mean, little did we know the opportunity would come at full force. Yeah. And, so, know, but I, I again, I don't want to give away everything in into the book, but I, I do want to ask you some really specific questions. It comes to a place where you kind of have to decide with his family, but it's probably you because he is suffering now in a new way. This is something, my husband went through this with his mother, which is very different. When you you sort of have control of, hey, they're suffering. They're not going to get better. When Joel was in the hospital, this is all, I, I think anybody who picks up the book is going to know that my husband died of West Nile virus. Yeah, I mean, and the way these viruses work, which now the world seems to be catching up, <laughs> 
because viruses are similar in that they wreak havoc on the central nervous system. And Mm -hmm. um, in Joel's case, he became brain damaged and completely paralyzed. And when the doctors came in to tell me that, I still had the thought, okay, so now we know it's West Nile virus. It was a big mystery for three weeks. He was in a coma. None of the doctors could figure out why or how that happened. Once we got this diagnosis, there was a part of me that was still waiting like, okay, so now we know. So what are you going to do to make him better? There was nothing mm-hmm. that anybody could do. And like screenwriter term, it's like a rack focus moment yeah. where like everything became crystal clear. And I was like, Joel no longer has a voice. So I need to be his voice. Yeah. And I knew with a hundred percent clarity that Joel would have said, what took you so long? It's time. Just backing up a little, when you first, when they did the first test without the contrast, and then when you were waiting three weeks to figure out what was going on when they figured out that he had a West Nile virus, would you share with somebody who ends up in a situation like that, that you now having gone through it, that you would have, if you could, just anything you could have done different, like waiting, for example, for three weeks, about something. Is there anything different, a way that, because doctors are scary, they're busy, hospitals are overwhelming places. Was there any tools or something that you learned at that time? Um, Like you said already, okay, the contrast, always get the contrast test, MRIs. But even in that, like being an advocate for yourself or somebody, because it is, it's it's scary. You know what it it really, for me, Gabby, what was so helpful is I had two friends with me at the hospital almost every day. Mm -hmm. And so they were privy to all of the information that the doctors were coming in and telling me. And when I tell you that there were doctors for things I never even knew, like every hour there was like, it was a revolving door of doctors and nurses and tests and blood being drawn and another x-ray of this. And I was trying to take it all in, but having two close friends with me as my memory was essential in hindsight. And they also were there to help me figure out what was going on because the doctors were rock stars, all of them. Yeah. And they were all trying to figure out what is that? Like this, it was crazy. Like, you know, nobody could figure out what was going on with, with Joel and why he was deteriorating so rapidly. The, the thought was it was a virus, but which virus became the question. Um, but the other thing was, so I had those friends and they would do research and then they, you know, they, the doctor would say something like meningitis and they would like research meningitis. Oh, this is what it means. It made, mm-hmm. and, then, and then that would beget a few questions. And then I would try to track down that neurologist. But then there was like a pulmonary specialist at one point. I was like, why is there a lung doctor that's part of Joel? Like I couldn't tra- track it all. Yeah, um, and be grieving. Yes, and it was, it was all overwhelming, but I had Sophie. And, and was, you had a daughter, a teenage yeah, daughter. Sophie was 13. Yeah. And I did not want her to be scared. I didn't want her to be afraid of what was happening to Joel. And I was very honest with her throughout because I would convey to her what the doctors conveyed to me, which is daddy is really sick, but they're doing everything they can to help him. You know, had her live her life as normally, whatever that means, as possible during this time. Because, you know, we all go through things and then you you have to show up for your kids. It is, it's so interesting when someone is not well or or passes away, how many dynamics. Oh, my God. Because yeah. it's, it's you, it's you, it's him, it's your daughter. It, it's just all of these dynamics. 
when this is happening and it is unknown and you're being, because you want to be truthful with your children, you know, whatever appropriate way you can, depending on their age, how do you get, how do you muster up the strength to kind of show up for her? Or do you just sort of say, hey, right now, this is what I have. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. Manage to, like I said, I was as honest with her as I, as I could be without scaring her. Yeah. And at the same time, I think I just was on autopilot because I wanted to keep her on track. Talking about like a three-week period of time that Joel was in the hospital. Yeah. He quickly fell into a coma, but he walked himself in. I mean, when we made the decision to take him to the hospital, we made the decision together. He walked himself in. He was able to communicate with the doctors. We thought maybe he had the flu or something. So I couldn't wait to get back home and like disinfect everything. I didn't want to catch it. I didn't want Sophie to catch it. When I went back to the hospital the next day, he was not yet in a coma, but he was not present. He was non-communicative. So it, it was so quick. And then two days later, he was in a coma. The other thing to go back to your other question, like what information I might share with somebody who was thrust into an emergency critical hospital situation, ask even the most obvious questions because they kept saying to me, in a very nonchalant way, the doctors, yeah, yeah, your husband's not communicative. No, he, you know, he's not verbal right now. He's not. And I would just take that like, okay, I, I guess Joel's not talking. A friend of mine said to me, ask if he's in a coma. And I was like, they would tell me he's not in a coma. And she was like, we're bickering about, it, you know. She's like, just ask. I think he might be in a coma. I'm like, he's not, he's not communicative. That's what they're saying. She said, just ask. And I was like, uh, is my husband in a coma? Like rolling my eyes. Yeah. And the doctor said, well, um, home is an umbrella term, but yeah, he's in a coma. And my mm. friend was like, I told you. Yeah, because you think that they would just say that, or maybe that's obvious, or you'd sound silly or whatever. It never occurred to me mm. to even ask the what question. What does that mean, non-communicative? Yeah. And um, it was something else. It's like he was non-communicative and, yeah. and something else. And and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe he's in a coma. And then that was like the first couple of days in the hospital. Mm. Three weeks later, we're in a family meeting with the doctors who are basically telling us there is no hope for Joel, that he has lost the battle with West Nile. I could either move him to a facility, a rehab facility where he would, you know, be on a trach and peg, which is like mm -hmm. a feeding tube and a breathing machine. But he had been on a ventilator at the hospital for most of the three weeks. And it was in this meeting that somebody brought up the ventilator. And I think it was my father-in-law. Well, what would happen if we took him off the ventilator? And the doctor said, well, we don't think he can breathe on his own. And so then I said, I'm sorry, is Joel on life support? And she said, oh yeah, he's been on life. It, it was, I was like, again, it sounds like stupid even <laughs> saying this. No, I wouldn't know go. this as his wife. I had been in the hospital every single day. Nobody referred to the ventilator as the life support machine. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of those things where like, if I hadn't have asked, and this was like an 11th hour meeting, like, what are we doing with my husband? Yeah. Like he's now has brain damage. He's now paralyzed. He will never walk or talk or recognize anybody in this room ever again. And we still had to ask the question, oh, is yeah. the, the breathing machine, yeah. that's life support? And the doctor was like, well, yeah. 
Duh, of course. Duh. Did we, what do you think? So I guess that <laughs> would, like, you, I mean, I guess ask this, but like, I didn't even know to ask that question is the thing. Well, because again, we, we, we think of life support as one thing. And when they tell you a ventilator, you think it is something that's assisting them. Yes. Not and I think them it alive. was. In Joel's case, it definitely was something there to assist his breathing yeah. when he initially fell into the coma. But then as this went on, day after day after day after day, week after week. When you're there and you're with his parents. Ugh, the worst. In there, who has power? And I don't mean like legal power. I mean, you're in a dynamic. It's your husband, but it's their son. I'm just curious because I would imagine sometimes there's like, if there's a conflict in feelings, you guys didn't have that. A little bit. Really? Okay. Well, so I all even in that, right? Like even in all these little nuances, it's like, well, who's calling the shots? And then how does everyone feel? Because everyone has to agree kind of and and you know, sort of right, like for something like that to happen or those choices to be made. But how do you manage that? How do you communicate? I will tell you that I give Joel's family a tremendous amount of credit for trusting me during those difficult days. And it's not that we were in disagreement, but I think because, because I had called them earlier in the year in that cry for help that Joel didn't know about that I was calling them, I think they realized that I was privy to certain things as Joel's wife, mm-hmm. that they were not as his parents. As close as we all were. Yeah. Well, it's different dynamics. It is a completely different dynamic. Yeah. And I think because of that, they respected that, you know, I was the one, we were all at the hospital pretty much every day at different times, but yeah. I was there. I was the one that the doctors would talk to. And then I would have to go home at night and call the parents and tell fill them. It was just like this whole cycle of like sickness, bad news every day. But they respected the decisions I was making. And even when I kind of made this decision, like, I think we're going to turn everything off. I can't imagine, like, number one, how I was able to have that conversation. I think every, I think honestly, I just kept Joel in mind. And I just kept thinking, I am speaking for him. He would allow that. He would be fine with that. He would encourage that. I I really do. I think a part of him, you know, I it was so like him to let me take the lead in a lot of situations. And I think he was happy that I was the one yeah. doing that for him when he needed it. Because it was, it, it could have kept going. You didn't necessarily make the choice to say, hey, let's turn everything off. You're merely the bridge from thinking what would they want to what's going to be best for them. Right. Because I knew Joel would not want to be in a place where people would come to visit him and he would have no idea. And the burden it would put on people and me as his wife and what that would have done to our daughter and to his parents to see him like that is not something he ever would have wanted. And I know that with absolute certainty. Healing or, I don't, I don't even know what the word is if you say moving on, but, you know, when you, you someone passes on and now you're there and your daughter's there and she's at a very 
uh, pivotal age. Yeah. Very pivotal age. I was talking to a friend of mine because it's interesting. A lot of times you people will be in these situations and the one person that they need and they want to lean on is the person who is gone. You and Sophie, you had, you put a couple things in practice together, you know, just to kind of navigate some of this. But again, you have a close family. And so if, you know, when you, when people read this book, it, it's like, it's a beautiful example of how this went down, if I could tell you that. Thank you. Because this is, it's it's not easy. So I think that's actually why it's important because it's a really beautiful example. Oh, that's so sweet. No, it's true. So how did you keep her close, but then give her the space to mourn uh, the loss of her father? It was, It really was and continues to be for me the biggest struggle isn't the right word, but I think I was determined to just let Sophie feel her feelings. My God, I, I mean, I still say that to her. Just feel what you're feeling. But you know what? She was 13. She had just started eighth grade. It's really like the worst time in, in a person's life. In a person's life. life anyway. And then to have your dad die. And, you know, there was nobody at the time who we knew who had experienced anything similar. And she was already an only child. Joel and I, you know, we wanted more kids, just yeah. was not in the cards. So we were a tight little trio. And now suddenly Sophie and I were this dynamic duo. I wanted to be strong for her, but I really think I kept up like, I was crying all over the place. I cried. Were you comfortable like if she saw that you were crying or knew that you were crying or did you try I, to conceal it or how did you do it? I did both. It's funny. I did both with her because I wanted her, she, she like her father is very stoic. Mm-hmm. And I felt like where I was so loud with my feelings and I was crying all the time and really so bereft. And she wasn't. Which is sometimes more scary. Yes, it was. And, you know, I, I people were giving me tons of information about grief groups and grief therapy and grief this and grief that. And it it, it sounds strange, but it didn't feel right. Just like being grief specific. And I would present these things to Sophie. Like, I found this camp you can go to. It's like a weekend. It's just for kids who, who lost a parent or a friend or mm-hmm. a relative. And I don't want to go. I'm not going to know anybody. I, I don't want to go alone. And I was like, well, I don't, you're, of course you're not going to know anybody. We don't know anybody whose father died or, right. you know. And then I would hear about like these grief groups and I could find, get her in a group with people her age and what, but she didn't want to do that either. And so I just insisted that she start seeing a therapist. And that was my, one of my other coping mechanisms you mm-hmm. asked. Like I did have my friends and I started yeah. making phone calls to people, but I got myself a therapist just as somebody to talk to and how to navigate Joel having MS, which we thought was like yeah. the worst thing that was going to happen. But so Sophie got in therapy. I was in therapy. My mantra was like, we need to feel our feelings. We need to feel our feelings. I felt like she wasn't crying enough. But in terms of her seeing me cry, I think I did to a point. I didn't want her to know how much I was really falling apart. And in some ways... For better or worse, I made her my focus. I mean, poor thing. She's an only child anyway. And I was like, she was already- a Jewish mother. Yeah, Jewish mother and four <laughs> Jewish grandmothers. So, I mean, that's the crazy thing too. Oh, wait, you get all the all the parent, grandparents are around, right? Yeah, all the grandparents. It's she, amazing. She's got four grandmas, two grandpas, but she doesn't have a dad. I mean, and it's such a gift to have her grandparents. No, but I she's get got it. great I relationships with all of them. But 
No dad. But yeah, so I just made her, like I was starting to say, for better or worse, she was the focus of everything. So like I would not make plans for my, not that I was making plans, but like no, I, my, my whole thing was like, keep her in school. You think that routine was also going to be help a little bit with the recover with the healing or, and also buy a little bit. I don't want, I hate the word distraction, but maybe that a healthy distraction. Um, I think I saw it for me as a healthy distraction to keep like Sophie became my healthy or maybe unhealthy distraction. Yeah. But I felt like this was a kid who was like happy and outgoing and, if she wanted something, she would go for it. I didn't want that to change. Mm. She was in eighth grade. And so there were all these eighth grade activities and she was in the school play mm-hmm. and she was in the school talent show and she was had all of these things to look forward to. And I wanted her to continue looking forward to them. And then like, you know, finishing up this school and then moving on to high school and class trip to San Francisco and a class trip to New York City. And it's like, she had been to San Francisco and New York millions of times, but yeah. I wanted her to have this experience with her school and with her friends and her classmates. So there was a lot to keep on track for her because I didn't want her to be to the degree that I felt. And that said, she still knew that if she needed to take a month off of school, I would have been fine with that. Sure. You know, Joel happened to die around the holidays. So there were a lot of school vacations coming up. And so we just kind of took oh, a good day. Oh, the holidays. The whole timing of everything, because he died a few days after my birthday. But again, that was a choice I had to make. So my birthday is forever intertwined with him dying and Halloween and then the big holidays. And When you just look back at this part, it seems like you naturally did a lot of things that really worked out. Sophie might argue. <laughs> would she? What would she argue? I want to know. Well, I know. I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, but, you know, I... Somehow within a within the first year of losing Joel, I started seeing somebody. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I want to get into that. But I, I want to just, because I have, you know, I, I've had friends. I, my father died when I was very young, so it's a very different experience. But I have a friend who took care of her mother, and she passed away of cancer. And I learned a lot about grief through her, which was like, you know, sometimes people will be like, well, <laughs> It's been two years. It's been one year. Oh, it's been I hate six that. months. Yeah. I think, you know, people grieve differently and I think it could even come back again and again. I think maybe if, if it's your birthday or it's happening or it could be a certain day for family members. With my dad, it would be like a sometimes somebody, my aunt would smell something and would set her off into the me- memory of my father. Really important that grief, yes, we have to move on with our lives and we, we do have to try to heal somewhat to do that. But that also to give yourself permission to be like, you know what? I really miss them and I feel sad or I feel angry or I feel gypped or whatever it is that you're feeling. Do you find it helpful like you have? I, I, I get a sense that you have a very nice group of friends. Is that who you talk to? Is it the therapist and just sort of, you know, get that out? Or do you keep that more private? One, it's, it's not so much. I always say it's not that you move on, but you move forward. That's the thing about grief you don't get over it. You just find ways of dealing with it. And yes, there are definitely certain days and anniversaries, but there's a certain amount of pressure I find, like Joel's birthday or our anniversary. You would think, you know, that's when I'll like get the texts and the phone calls and people, oh, I'm thinking of you today or on Facebook. (laughs) And the truth is, for me, Mm -hmm. grief has been entirely unpredictable. You know, I could wake up on Joel's birthday expecting to be 
completely bereft and unable to get out of bed. But the truth is that can be a Tuesday in July Mm -hmm. that I feel that way. Or it could be, you know, any given day of the week or month where it hits me harder than it might on a day where there's an expectation around having a particular feeling about losing your loved ones. So I just, I think grief is just so, it's one of those things. It just gets easier. I find that time has been a miraculous healer. But in terms of like my own personal healing and what really saved me was my writing. The reason I did not ever think that would be the case was because I made my living as a screenwriter. I never wrote about myself, would never even have occurred to me. But one of my friends, when I was deep in my grief, suggested that I join her writing class. It wasn't a class. It was a group. Again, like with everything with Sophie, I was like, I had to run it by Sophie first. Like, <laughs> yeah, Would you be okay if I left the yes. house for 90 minutes and did this? Yeah. And yeah. by the way, I was going literally going like up the street. Yeah. And it was like for two hours once a week. And I was like, so if I'm thinking of joining a writing group, okay. Yeah. It's only once a week. Uh, that's fine. It's just, I'll be right down the street and I'll leave my phone on. If you, okay, mom, it's fine. But you know, it's, I'm not sure. I'm not, mom, yeah. go to the writing group. Like she- she probably was so happy that I was going to be out of her face for two hours once a week. But um, so I joined this writing group. It was really like a baby, baby, baby step of my healing. Mm. And I didn't know it. I, there was something, and when she said to, my friend suggested that I join her group, I was like, I don't, I, like, I'm a professional writer. Like, what am I going to, why would I do that? You know, but I think it was just a lot of people around me were like attempting, like, what can we do? What can we, and that was one of the things. Let me ask you that for a second. Around people, if they experience loss, unless you're very close to the person, let's say you're like a second tier friend, not like the one of the two friends at the hospital with you. Right. Okay. What can people do for somebody who has lost someone close to them? What is, because, you know, you talk about it like, oh, they kind of avoid you because they're scared because they don't know what to say or do because you, what can people do that aren't like really in the inside pocket that just they're there? Right. I wish I had an answer for you. I got to tell you. Just I, bring food and be quiet? <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's literally like if somebody, I had one of those meal trains that some friends set up for me and it was so nice because I hate cooking. And But like my rule was have it go to your house. Like, I don't want people knocking on my door and giving me their food and wanting to hug me and yeah, talk and look to at me, me in the eyes and, and say like, how are you? I, I couldn't deal. Right. But there were times when that was probably the only thing I wanted was for somebody to ask me, how are you doing? But maybe it's got to be specific people. I think when you're in this weird zone where you're not really close to people, so that's all intuitive, but you're close enough, you're sort of going like, I want to support them. I mean, things that were specific were helpful. Like if people mm. were very specific and like, I'm going to the post office. Do you need me to drop anything off? Do you need any stamps? Or, you know, or I'm going to the mall. Do you need new pajamas? I see you're still wearing pajamas every day. Like, you know, <laughs> I see you're living in your yes, pajamas. Like, you know, things that were very specific. Instead of, um, let me know if you need anything. Yeah, it's like, I'm okay. never going to call you. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I go to Starbucks every morning after school drop off. Do you want me to? Yeah. Bring you something. Yeah. We're doing this thing with the kids. Should we take Sophie on right. this? Got it. Right. Tell me about when your friend said to you, because I thought this was a really important statement to choose easy. Oh my God. That was also a lifesaver. There's a hike I do near my house. And that also is, was a Wait, big- Is that the Clooney? Yes. Okay. We do Clooney because George Clooney's house is um, right there. And everybody knows that's where George's house is. And it's right off of this hiking trail. 
And we were doing Clooney one day and which I would, I, I still do it. I've been doing it for 25 years. After Joel died, like I went every single day and I would sometimes be by myself and I would sometimes be with a friend, but it was important just to be outside and moving my body and breathing fresh air and just thinking and crying and having that hour to myself, even if I was with somebody, but I was happened to be with a friend one day. She wanted to go off trail to like a harder part of the trail. And I was like, is she crazy? Like, no, like this is hard enough. She was doing the sport. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) She was doing the sport. She was doing the hike and she wanted to go off. She heard that there was a waterfall and it was really pretty. And I was like, I'm not, I I don't know. This is hard enough right now. Like I, I can't do much more. And it was something about me saying that to her that inspired her to say to me, you know something, you're right. Everything in your life has become difficult. So I really think choosing easy is the best thing you could do for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, there's a choice I can make. And she's right. And I can choose easy. And it was like this weight had been lifted. And it's not even like I can tell you that I was actively aware that this is so difficult. This is, But you know what was difficult was my husband died. Right. <laughs> that in and of itself was the hardest thing. And I was living through it raising, suddenly I, I call it being an only parent. Sophie's an only child. I'm now an only parent. I didn't plan for that. Joel was a very active and engaged father. And so suddenly now to be doing this on my own, like that was difficult. But I think the notion of choose easy can be used at a lot of different times in life. And I think when I saw it, I was like, this is important. You know, it could be even right now, like people, the unknown, okay, COVID work, Kids are on Zoom. And sometimes we're, we're all thinking, well, I should do this. I should do that. And sometimes maybe you should just choose easy. Right. And it's, it's, it's important. Okay. So I, won't, I, I don't want to ruin the story too much. But, well, first of all, you believe in psychics now. Yeah. There's no way you couldn't. Well, I always have. I guess what I want to know is, because I'll just sort of give a loose frame. You were, you were sort of given a snapshot that it was going to be okay with Joel, who was now looking over you, that you were going to, someone was going to come into your life. They have a son. They love, they're going to love you. It's okay with him. Do you think you would have allowed yourself, and I'm just curious, to be in that relationship if you weren't given that permission? No. You don't? No. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Because I also- You would have felt too guilty and weird, right? Yes, but I also- I had seen psychics on and off my whole life. And you did know. you did you know when you went to the psychic, did you know Marco already? Was he in your in your ether? Yes. Your daughter was taking lessons from him? Yes. But I but he wasn't And you didn't it didn't come to your mind, right? Like, oh. No. No, no, no. I, I was like, I mean, Ellie and I would laugh about it because like, who? She, the psychic said somebody I already know. And we were like, who do we already know? Like, you know, we we're like racking our brains. Like, who who could it be? Starting to say is like, I had seen psychics and I, you know, I, I don't, it's like, I believe, but I don't like Good. walk away. Like, oh my God, I'm going to win a million dollars. I better start playing the lot. Like, <laughs> but that experience was very specific. Well, that one was because my husband had died. Like, you know, I was- Well, and she was like, oh, he's rubbing your face and he wants you to know. And like, it's not like you had gone into her and said- No, and I also don't walk in with a ton of information. Like, That's what I mean. Yeah, I just kind of, I had the appointment and I showed up and I I didn't 
start out with, so, okay, my husband died. I really hope yeah, he comes so, through. Like she, it, she picked up on all of that. Well, so I guess this felt really important to me too, this very subtle moment, because I felt like a gift back to you. It, it would have come another way. If you hadn't gone to a psychic, it yeah. would have come through, who knows, grandma, whoever, <laughs> you know. You know, I had a dream and Joel came in, yes. and whatever. But yeah. the point is, is these gifts that we get in these hard times, if we can notice them or pay attention. Yours was like a smack over the head, but. It wasn't, it wasn't because I was so not in that frame of mind of like romance or somebody no, else. No, but it, later when it yeah. showed up again, I think it was like the, the green card for you yes. to say, hey, you know, you can let yourself. Going back to what we were saying about my friend saying, choose easy. It's. It is very much in my nature to question everything and go over a million things in my head. Like, you know, I'd never make a decision easily. We could be driving, you know, to go out for Chinese food. And you'll and analyze, I'll should be we get like, Mexican? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I have friends like that, actually. Okay, that's me. Her name's Nancy. <laughs> I, you know what I tell Nancy? Have a feeling, not a feeling about the feeling. You know, like, I'm like... Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So I, Well, that was that's why when my friends said, choose easy... That was part of it. Yeah. I just was like, I'm not going to overthink this. I'm just going to go with it. Yeah. So it's important about Marco because, so a man enters your life. You guys have to hide a little because get kids and you don't, and it's weird timing or whatever people, it's like, there's a, is there an, exp, is there an expiration time of like, well, you, you know, mourn the loss for six months, mourn it for nine months, mourn right. it for two years. Who Who's to say, right? I think anytime we can have love, in a clean and honest way, we should celebrate it. But what I I want to ask you about is having romance and love with somebody and simultaneously them comforting you right. about the loss of your husband. I think that's such an interesting and telling thing about, about him, that he's able to do that. Well, that was part of it too, because when Marcos came into my life in this like romantic way, yeah. he was one of the very few, if not the only person who didn't treat me like a widow. And by that, I mean, he spoke about Joel very, he knew Joel because right. Marcos was Sophie's guitar teacher and Joel, you know, guitar fell under his Yeah, that's his umbrella. Yeah. So he would take Sophie to the, her music lessons. Um, so he knew Joel and they liked each other. And when Marcus would talk about Joel, he did it in a way that was not at all self-conscious or troubling. It was just very matter of fact. And he's a pretty confident person. And he mm -hmm. really like his feet are firmly on the ground. And when I was with him, I didn't feel like the town widow. He wasn't pitying you. He wasn't. No, that's what I mean. I thought it was interesting that it sounded well. Also, because he does service and he does these other I know, kinds he's of like things. A -gooder. Yeah, <laughs> I think that gives people a different kind of confidence about their intention. Oh, right. Interesting. Because he's yeah. like, I'm a good guy. Like, I don't have to question, but I like her and I want her to know. I had nothing. I mean, it's sad about Joel, but that had, in a way that almost didn't have anything to do with him. And yeah. so. So I just thought it was interesting that he simultaneously could romance you above board and allow you to feel occasionally, you know, sad mm -hmm. and mourn your husband. That is a very beautiful and unique dynamic that he allowed and created for you. And he still does. Yeah, so let's talk about that. How many yeah. years are we in? It's been um, around six years. 
Your mom is right. You're you are lucky in love. Somehow, yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, it's okay to say you're lucky in love. Yes, but then it's like, but my husband died. You know what I mean? It's this weird thing where, like, yes, but we 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 never will understand all the ways of the universe, and right. and simultaneously, someone else and different. And Marcos, if you're listening, I, not only do I really appreciate the way you you handled <laughs> Melissa, but I was telling her earlier, and she said she wanted me to say this that you're, <laughs> he's very. It had to be someone that attractive. Right, I'm telling you when when like word got out, well, that the I ladies was like, like all the moms. Like, oh yes. Wait, were, what was the line you said? I thought it was so good that you said it in your mind, but you didn't say it to the lady when she's like, "You're at a party. You finally you come oh. out the transition of like I'm here with a man I'm dating who's over who's openly affectionate to you. Yeah, because again, he doesn't have anything to hide. When we don't do anything wrong, oh, we, that's great. He does. Yes, he's like, I yeah, that. I like her. Here we are. Right. But then she's like, oh, <laughs> like, right. when did your husband pass? And you said in your mind that you were like, what, what is it? You don't have a boyfriend. And when did your, when was your divorce final? Yeah, or I said, something? and how long ago was your divorce final? Yeah, I think, right. it, I think it's also people will be put in this position where they don't know what's okay. And at the end of the day, I don't think it really matters what other people think. Well, that's what I kind of came to. And that's like the, the widow-ish part of the title is yeah. that I always say, you know, I don't look like a widow because I think we all think of a widow as like old and tragic and wrinkled. And sadly, I think that that has changed a little bit because of COVID. There's younger and younger widows these days. But I I don't look like a widow. I don't act like a widow because of Marcos. I fell in love again within a year of losing my husband. But I feel like a widow. I am a widow. But I think the perception, especially when Marcos was very much in the picture with me, was that I was like, oh, she's widow-ish, you know, like... (laughs) Yeah. Kind of. She's kind of a widow. But I am like, it, it's those three things that are like all happening at the same time and all of these feelings that are happening at once of grieving my husband completely besides myself with grief and yet feeling attracted to somebody being open to that experience of whatever it was going to be with him. I didn't think we'd be together sitting here six years later. I thought it would be a fling and whatever, but. Yeah, that's why you picked the hot music teacher. You're like, <laughs> I thought it was going to be a fling. You didn't know. No idea. You did have a few, feel like you had some kind of healing rituals, like you talked about, like where you guys would read. I know Sophie at one point was like, I'm over this, but maybe you could just share a couple of things. You talked about the writing, that that was really helpful. Obviously friends, any other things, and a therapist going and talking to somebody who isn't going to be on any side, right? Like just having someone to really say how you feel. Did you ever get mad about all this? Were you mad ever or feel gypped or did you go through any of that? I don't know that I was mad. I have been very sad. I was sad that my husband suffered the way he did. But I'm not one to question why me, why him, why I just, I mean, Joel was mad. Joel was mad that he had MS. If that was the worst that had happened, we would have figured out how to live with it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and we would have managed it and we would have made it okay and our lives would have gone on. But it was a hard thing to overcome for him. Again, being so physical and all of that and having and and really suffering with it. And we knew so many people who had MS who their daily lives were not affected in the way that Joel's was. So he was angry about that. Maybe I was too on on his behalf, but I think sadness was more my thing than than anger. When Joel first passed away, did you believe in your heart of hearts, even if you went through a gambit of emotions, like time will make this a little easier and there's a lot of 
life ahead and joy and laughter and love and intimacy. Did you did you feel that then or was that something that had to really show up? I think it it had to show up because I think in those early days of grief, I think really a lot of what I felt was relief for Joel, mm. that it was over, like yeah. he was no longer suffering. It's almost like I was happy for him. Like I wanted to share, I wanted to like call him, say, oh my God, honey, can you believe it? Like it's over. Like we did it. Sounds like a crazy person, but I, <laughs> but I think I felt that like just the suffering being over was like the, the biggest thing I could give him. But I also think I just really going through the motions. I had read somewhere about acting as if, and I don't know that it was like specific to grief, probably not, but I was acting as if I was okay. And I was acting as if I would be okay. And I was acting as if I would be enough of a parent for Sophie. And that helped me. That was one of my healing rituals, like acting as if doing Clooney was another healing ritual. Um, when I joined that writing group and a friend suggested that I start writing about what was going on in my life. Mm-hmm. And I did. And a result of that eventually came this memoir. But um, some very weird things happened. Like I, I started listening to Joel Osteen. <laughs> oh, your new Joel. I know. I heard about that. Little crush on him. So, I mean, that was another crazy thing because yeah. it's he's an evangelical preacher and I am a nice Jewish girl. And uh, I did not become born again or any of those things, but I would listen to Joel Osteen and it and it would move me in a way that helped my he- helped me heal, helped me feel better. Yeah. That there was a reason for everything. I didn't necessarily believe like on the Jesus stuff and all of that, but just the message overall inspired me. And there were a lot of books on healing and there was a, a daily meditation on grief that Sophie and I referred to, we read every night. So I just try to stick to these things that mm-hmm. provided a little bit of a routine, like the reading every night, hiking every day, keeping Sophie on track, and then slowly but surely finding my way, keeping things easy, not overthinking. So when you wrote Widowish, I know it was on the suggestion like, hey, you're right about your own life. And, and I know that sometimes sharing a story is so healing for the author. Were you hoping you know, when people read this story, is there something that you would really, you would hope that they, I don't know, not that they get, but maybe just by sharing this, people don't feel so alone in this process. And then also part of life will will go on. Yeah. I mean, the world keeps spinning, you know, it just does. I think, you know, the, the greatest thing for me in writing this book is that it has kept Joel alive hmm. and close. And we're sitting here having a conversation about my husband, yeah. which is miraculous because he's no longer here. Yeah. So that is really the best part of it for me. Now, on top of that, of course, I, you know, I started writing essays and I've been published in a number of places in the New York Times and the LA Times. And what was miraculous about that is that I'm taking such a personal experience mm-hmm. and that anybody was even remotely interested (laughs) enough to even publish one of my essays or, you know, it was amazing. But I did start hearing from other widows or people who had experienced a loss of some kind. I actually heard from a lot of people who were divorced. I've heard from people who have lost a job or who moved somewhere new, but there was a loss that they were feeling. And that was almost like 
the cherry on top that I couldn't believe that I still can't believe that people want to have this conversation because my story has moved them to tell their story. And I think that that is really an exchange of love and a feeling seen and being seen and bearing witness to other people's story has been such a gift. And that sharing and exchanging of those feelings and vulnerabilities and relationships and It's really been amazing. Alyssa Gould, congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate just the honesty that you and the heart that you put into Widowish and just willing to share your story about Joel, about Sophie, about Marcos. (laughs) Because like you said, it's just a way to connect. I think people will, they will laugh and they will definitely cry and, and they will, and there's so much of this too that it just makes sense. You know, it's like some of the stuff you said, especially like I said, like going to the party and being, having to reveal like, and having to tell your daughter like, um, you know, yeah. you're a music teacher. Um, <laughs> you know, I just want you to know we, we've gone on, we've got, we're going to go on a date. Oh my God. So um, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.